I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. It is well known that most drugs can spend years in development before making it to market. To satisfy the FDA, every drug that is approved for treatment must pass rigorous safety and efficacy testing before it reaches consumers. Production of drug and pretrial safety testing can easily take one to five years. But what happens with drugs that are only intended for one patient? And what if that patient's need is so severe that delayed access to a drug is the difference between life and death? To discuss this issue, I'm joined by Dr. Lauren Black, Distinguished Scientist with Scientific Advisory Services at Charles River. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks for having me on, Mary. Thanks for being here. I understand you've done biotech consulting a long time, but how did you start your career in research? And can you tell me a bit about your background with the FDA? Sure thing. I was a postdoc at NIH, and I was doing molecular pharmacology on neurons in 1991. But basic research took this huge downturn at that time. And so I took a job at FDA thinking it would be nice, steady science work. Um, But they had posted a job opportunity at the um, AIDS group at FDA called the Antiviral Drugs Group Division. And I had really had my head in the laboratory and I wasn't aware of how bad the AIDS crisis was. And it was actually a very depressing time because the we were really weren't addressing the actual viral load. Um, the toxicity of the drugs was terrible. Act Up was protesting, and very rightly so. And before internet, if you think about it, they were passing out pamphlets. They were educating themselves on the nature of virology and the difficulties of the immune system. And they were being extremely effective in getting FDA's and NIH's attention by that time. And so the antivirals group was actually invented to be a very proactive group to embrace those patients' needs and to speed up the approval of drugs. So I actually cut my teeth in the the process of a public health crisis on high-risk disease, and I've never left that field. I've always felt very strongly that patients that had an unmet medical need needed to get the fastest access to drugs after seeing upfront and personal what what they were up against. So why is the FDA's rigorous testing so necessary? Well, I think you're aware that a lot of drugs fail um, from safety concerns. We all know about getting sleepy with antihistamines or You know, that's the actual side effect that comes from the action of the drug on the brain that's at the same receptors that we would like to counteract allergy. So that's what we call pharmacologic-based toxicity. It's an effect that's actually on the target, but it's in a way that we don't want it to act. Gotcha. So as we're working on very new drugs, we often don't understand like where those receptors are um, in the gut or the brain or the immune system. There's a lot of things we don't understand about the basic mechanisms of action of the disease. And there's a lot of things that we don't understand sometimes about where the receptors are in the body. I mean, it seems so basic, right? Yeah. But um, that's why I'm kind of glad of my original training in classic pharmacology, (laughs) because you have to ask those questions. Okay, where else is the receptor? 
what else could it hit? And so at FDA, you're trained to think about those nightmare scenarios of what it could do that you don't want it to do. Right. And to ask those hard questions to make sure that we have the checks and balances. Right. A lot of the early drugs uh, that were used in AIDS patients caused peripheral neuropathy. And that wasn't shown very well in the animal models, but it caused intense pain in the patients um, at the same doses that was needed for the virus. It wasn't until later that we got the protease inhibitors that really counteracted the viral load. And that's the basis of the life-saving therapies that we have today. I was really fortunate to be at FDA during that time when the protease inhibitor came through. (laughs) It was so exciting. So switching gears a little bit, what is personalized medicine when it comes to patients like, for example, J.C. Hermstad and Mila Makovic? I understand that J.C. is a 25-year-old with Lou Gehrig's disease, while Mila is a young girl with Batten's disease who have both recently benefited from personalized medicine. Yeah, I think we have come to the place in drug development where we understand a lot more about genetics of disease. So, yes, switching away from viruses and into genetic medicine, we have a lot of inborn errors. When we learned that there was an inborn uh, gene that was missing, in a patient, it, would, it had always been there, they're born like that. And as soon as we can diagnose them and intervene with that replacement gene product or the enzyme of interest, we can save their lives. So ALS has also been learned to be um, a whole series of different mutations are responsible for ALS. Um, so you have to look at those different subsets according to their genetic diagnosis. But We also know that Batten's disease is a specific mutation, but there's also something like 14 different forms of Batten's disease that are mutations in the same pathway that result in the same type of phenotype of neurological degeneration, some earlier, some younger, uh, and some in older kids or adults. In the case of Mila, she has two mutations that are different on both of the alleles that cause the dysfunction of a particular protein and she has Batten's disease, uh, CLN7. And there's only a handful or double handful of kids worldwide that are known to have that particular subtype of Batten's. In JC's case, she has a very aggressive form of ALS called FUS mutation, and it has a particularly bad course. Um, People with FUS typically, sadly, um, succumb to ALS typically, I don't know, approximately a year. Because it's so aggressive, it's very hard to intervene soon enough. And there has never been a medication that could actually address the fundamental gene problems in these two cases. So we need to design a whole new drug when we find the particular mutation. And it turns out, depending on the molecular biology and the control mechanisms around the mutation, some of them are amenable to an oligonucleotide therapy. And both of these girls have been, their particular genetics have been amenable to um, a strategy of using oligonucleotide intrathecally. Sadly, we did not know that JC had this particularly bad ALS until she was 25. Her family had lost her twin sister at the age of 17, and Alex had actually contracted the symptoms of ALS at age 11. So the two girls were identical. They had the same mutation, but one got symptoms at 11 and the other at 25. JC, I guess, um, through 
uh, some grace, right? Her symptoms arose during a time in which a drug was already available in a, on a company's shelf that happened to be appropriate for her. So I understand that in this case, she got lucky, well, in a way, because the drug already existed. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we couldn't have intervened quickly enough. Yeah, it was an act of considerable effort on the part of the patient advocacy group Project ALS, the head of uh, Columbia University's ALS Center, Dr. Neil Schneider, the company who originated the drug, and all of us that were helping around the sites trying to support like an exoskeleton, including Charles River. And I was helping with the regulatory strategy and also trying to make sure that the drug that was chosen was actually appropriate to the most expedient animal model. So as a result of that, we were able to put together a very lean and mean IND for JC and get her approved through the FDA. I have to say FDA was understandably cautious, but when they heard her situation in detail and how she'd lost her twin sister, they understood, of course, about FUSALS, and they made a lot of exceptions to the usual toxicology regulations. Well, I know that she had been, she and her family had been advocating pretty publicly for a while up until it was approved. Yeah, I, if I'd been in her mom's shoes, I would have done the same thing. I called my, she called her local, local yep. congressman, uh, Stephen King. And there was actually quite a response in Congress. There was mm-hmm. a bill that was put forward to ask FDA to move expediently for JC. I don't know that that had specific impact, but it, just to say that they got some, some considerable public discussion. And how is Mila's case different? In her case, Tim Yu uh, at Boston Children's Hospital recognized that her condition um, was suitable for an exon skipping drug, very similar to Ionis's Spinraza. And he was able to use a similar backbone and design a drug from scratch within several months. It was quite remarkable. We've done the testing for it. And then we uh, were able to get Mila started with just uh, acute data. And then I designed a type of a program in which we would update the FDA very regularly on the progress of the toxicology studies so that we could extend her dosing. And again, FDA's uh, group that does GI and enzyme replacements was wonderful in working with us to customize that IND approach. How do you envision cases like these being handled in the future? After all, not everyone has a congressman that's willing to go to bat for them like JC did. Well, not everybody should need one. There's definitely a sea change coming. It's really exciting. And it it goes back to the changes brought about by the AIDS patients who identified that they were an extreme unmet medical need. We see the finalization of the ALS guidance. We see a lot of guidances that have come out on rare disease from the agency in the past uh, 24 months. And I'm, I'm super excited about this because we're really getting to the place where we custom tailor the amount of, fr- of upfront non-clinical research that has to precede the human trials and customize that to the patient situation. Well, do you think that each ASO is going to require its own uniquely designed non-clinical research? It will. Or will there kind of, okay, you're not going to be able to have like a standard version that works for most ASOs? Yeah, that's typically called platform toxicology and it's kind of a... a a dream. <laughs> but right now, when you look across oligonucleotides, you find out, remember I mentioned early in this talk about the pharmacologically driven toxicity? Mm-hmm. Let's say there's another place in the genome that has a similar sequence. 
we could end up having the drug acting by its intended action, but at the wrong place, which is an off what we call an uh, on target, but unwanted toxicity that could arise by modulating the genome, which is a little scary, right? Once you put something into the spine or once you invoke a gene therapy, what's done is done. So you need to have really careful toxicology evaluations that look at the animal as if it were a miniature clinical trial. And, you know, you're basically handling the animals as patients. And so we get as much information as we can from each particular experiment and try to make sure that it's translationally accurate for, the, for predicting patient risk. We need the parents to know that, right? If, if you or me were signing our kid up for a trial, and I've been in those shoes, you have to, you have to feel as if you've done the best job possible to pr- make right. sure that you don't make something worse that was unintended. That was what I was going to mention. I, I would understand that the pretrial stuff for this would be a lot more complicated and a lot more involved when it comes to non-lethal genetic mutations. Right. I think Angelman syndrome is a great example of that. Um, Allison Barrent and Genetics and FAST have worked together with us to work on a therapy for Angelman syndrome. And these children, again, can be diagnosed as young as uh, Allison's daughter, Quincy. Mm -hmm. But um, these kids are very happy. They live long and normal length lives. But like a severe Mm -hmm. autism, there's many things that they can't do and require constant oversight for their entire lives, much as a toddler. Mm -hmm. And so the caretaking responsibilities are huge if an intervention could make these children able to participate in fuller lives to be, especially to become verbal. Um, and communicate with their parents. That's their prime thing is we wish we knew what they were thinking. And they are thinking all kinds of things. They're tuning into what's around them very much. There's intelligence and and interaction and socialization there, but they can't talk. We need to make sure that we uh, cultivate an appropriate risk-benefit approach to each one of these patients' groups. Absolutely. So I think what you're saying is that there needs to be a balance. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So again, this is part of the the patient-driven medicine initiative. Each patient subgroup has to be looked at in terms of the context of their disease, their natural history, the availability of other medications to treat them. But for these kinds of diseases, I'm talking about people that have a completely unmet medical need that have never been able to have intervention before. And that's what's so exciting is for the first time in in history, I guess starting with the advent of gene therapy in the early 90s, we started to see the ability to, for instance, fix SCID, uh, severe combined immunodeficiency. And so it's been slow progress, but we're, I think we're here now. I think so too. And it looks to me like regulation is doing its best to keep pace with science. Mm-hmm. And we're part of the mix in trying to help cultivate that, what would you call it, an unbiased and, and stakeholder collaboration that's required to bring these about quickly. Absolutely. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me about these complex issues. Well, I'm delighted to have a chance to, and I'm so enthusiastic to get a chance to get this word out and to make sure that people know that there's there's hope for patients uh, today that before didn't have an opportunity. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Lauren. Take care.